0: I want to thank our fans and listeners, especially those who took the time to leave us a review. This one comes from Junie Bird titled, So Good. Love the content and mission of this podcast. Cancer is so different for everyone. And Andrea asked really insightful and thought provoking questions. Keep up the good work. Well, Junie Bird, thank you so much for your five star rating and review. Also, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. We really appreciate you. On April 16th, 2009, Kim Hamer watched her 44-year-old husband take his last breath. During his illness and after his death, she was amazed by the helpful ways their co-workers, bosses, friends, and family supported them. Kim started calling their kind actions, Acts of Love. Now, Kim Hamer is the author of 100 Acts of Love a Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss, an easy-to-read book filled with 100 practical, quick, and effective ways to support a friend or coworker. Kim, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I think we're going to have fun. Yes, I think
0: we are too. So take us back to before your
1: husband was diagnosed with cancer. What did your life look like? So um, we lived in LA. We lived in several different parts of the country, but we landed in Los Angeles. My husband was an administrator at a private school out here. Our children were also attending private school. And we were kind of the, the typical young couple, you know, spending our weekends shuffling between kids' sports and birthday parties, trying to connect with other adults to make sure that, you know, to kind of hold down our sanity. Um, our, both our families are on the East coast. We spent a lot of time flying back to the East coast to stay connected to our families. But yeah, we had a pretty average life. Um, I know the stereotype of people in LA can be something of, you know, very health conscious. And and we were, we used to, you know, we ate organic food and we used to tag team in the mornings in our workouts. So my husband would get up early and go out and then I'd get up and get the kids, start getting kids ready. And then he'd come back and I'd go out. And then he, you know, when I came back, the kids would be ready for school and he'd head out to help the door. Um, So, you know, and we also, our marriage was very yin-yang we were very opposite each other, which really worked well for both of us, both in, you know, in our relationship and, and parenting and, and how we approached, you know, our lives and our marriage.
0: How long had you been married by
1: that point? We were married for 14 years. Okay. Um, so we had had three kids and when he died, our children were 12, nine, and seven, oh. uh, two boys and a girl, a girl that in the middle. The next yeah, they, they were young. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a really, I mean, obviously, you know, your listeners can imagine how difficult it was. Um, but it was definitely, um, yeah, it was just, it was definitely the hardest time in my life and I, and I hope it remains the hardest time in my life.
0: I'm sure. So what happened? Did your husband, you said you were healthy, you ate well, you exercised. Did your husband have any symptoms? I mean, how did this whole cancer diagnosis come about?
1: So, um, we went on vacation, my mother and her future, um, my step, my future stepdad came out to visit. We went on vacation and my husband was running these mild fevers, you know, they would get up to a hundred, a hundred point three. And then he had this cough. Um, what we didn't know at the time is that he had cancer and we were treating it with delsum syrup, cough syrup and ibuprofen. Um, and then uh, my friend came over one day when we got back and she said, art doesn't look good. And unfortunately, a couple of days prior to that, my daughter had been hit by a car in front of us. She was okay, but you know, oh there's the shock of watching your child getting hit by a car and my husband was very stoic. And so I kind of brushed it off and said, oh, he's probably just sort of like kind of getting over this, this traumatic thing that we witnessed. Right. And, and then he went out for a run. And he was supposed to be a six mile run and he came back in 10 minutes. And I was like, either your six miles is like world <laughs> record or something's wrong. And he says, yeah, I can't breathe. I'm just having trouble breathing. And so I, being the very caring and thoughtful wife said, here, take some of my asthma medicine. Maybe that'll help. <laughs> and so, oh. so that's what he did. And it took the edge off. But then a couple of weeks later, he's like, I am still having trouble and the interesting thing was when he made an appointment to see his doctor, he, right before he sassed me, I said, you know, maybe I should go with you. And we had never been to each other's doctor's appointments. It's just something we didn't do. Yeah. But we both felt like something was off and we went into the doctor. The doctor took, uh, did an exam of my husband and took and asked if we had had x-rays and Like, you know, we weren't big users of the medical system. And although our primary care said, you should get x-rays, we were like, we'll get to them in a second. Um, But he, you know, we had said no. And so the doctor said, let's take x-rays right here. And when he came back in, it was just like from a movie script. You know, we were on one side of the exam table and the doctor's on the other side of the exam table and he laces his fingers together and he says, I think you have cancer Um, then he proceeds to show us the x-rays. And the reason my husband was having trouble breathing is because he had all these spots, these nodules all over his lungs. So by the time we, he was fully diagnosed, um, which was, um, like five days later, um, it was stage four cancer. It had metastasized, you know, into his bloodstream and into his lungs and other areas of his body. It was a, a large diffused B cell lymphoma. I heard another listener of yours also had similar symptoms um, um, and yeah we were we were hitting the ground running if we hadn't if he hadn't gotten his first the 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 cancer was so advanced that he had surgery to remove the tumor. He had a tumor actually in his testicle, so it wasn't but it wasn't testicular cancer right um, they had the surgery, and normally they wait. For for him to mend a little bit before they start chemo surgery was on Friday. And they said, we, we can give you a day, but we're going to start chemo on Sunday. And that's when everything shifted. We hit the ground running and he was unable to work. He was getting treatment every two weeks. Um, We moved to a different hospital and with a different doctor. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's how he, that's how he was first diagnosed. Seven months after that, he was cancer free and um which was incredible and unbelievable yeah. and you know amazing and people were celebrating. Um but during that time one of the things during so and then um unfortunately the cancer came back a little less than two years later. So for those people who aren't familiar with cancer, it um you know, when you get to the finish line. For us, at least there was no like woohoo and celebrate and now I've got a new lease on life. That's sort of, that's the, that's the movie version of having Mm -hmm. cancer. Um, There was a great amount of trepidation because you don't know if it's coming back, right? So you have to schedule these tests and every time you get a test scheduled, there's a lot of breath holding. In addition, um, you know, I think that cancer or some type of tragedy brings out the best in your marriage and the worst in your marriage. So there's this sort of like, who are you now? Do I really like you? Do I like myself? What happened? Um, there were so many nights we would lie in bed and look at each other and go, what the F just happened? Like what just happened? Um, so there's that figuring out there's still side effects from the chemo that he was dealing with and those lasted for several months. So that, you know, we're trying to get our lives back together. We're trying to get to put our marriage back together. We're trying to figure out, you know, even our parenting style changed. So how are we parenting differently? Um, and then why, um, because our roles shifted so much right? When he had cancer, my husband was the disciplinarian. He was the one who kind of set the rules. I was the gentler one who reminded him often that our children were just children. (laughs) So, 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 and I, you know, his, there was an unsaid rule. We never spoke about it, but his job was to focus on healing and getting better. And my job was to hold down the fort with, and whatever means necessary. So, um, also the drugs, uh, one of the drugs he was on made him really mean. So he was normally, I mean, he was disciplinarian, but he was the kindest, gentlest, firmest disciplinarian there was, he was not mean and he would get mean and short tempered. And so was
0: there was a lot steroid? of my,
1: he How was, was on a steroid and I think it was Retoxin that did it. There was another drug that they like, they listed on the side effects, you know, of being, um, it's, it was like, it may affect your mood, uh, to, you know, to be short tempered. Um, so it was one of those drugs. It was the steroids plus this other drug. Um, and so that change, you know, I had to really learn how to talk to the children about their father without blaming him. It was like a personality change. Yeah. Um, so all those things really affected the way that we parented. So it was sort of getting back on our feet and understanding and figuring out how we were parenting moving forward because I had taken over some of his role, but then had let a lot of other things slide and go that he wasn't happy about, but he, you know, he, he was focused on living. Right. Um, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Um, So we're getting our lives back together. He's starting to do, he's starting to run again. He's doing triathlons and he does his first one in September of 2008. Uh, My mother gets remarried in November, 2009. She sells our family home, um, which plays into the story a little bit. And then, um, he starts not to feel well again. And again, I talk about my husband, very, very stoic. He didn't, we had just, he had just had tests done in October, the end of October. So even our doctor was like, look, your scans were clean. Like it can't be the cancer. Um, Christmas went, my husband was very lethargic, wasn't feeling well. And then finally at New Year's Day, he said, I'm really having trouble breathing. And I said, well, then we need to go to the hospital. So I shipped the kids off to friends' houses. We went to the hospital. They did an x-ray. They saw the nodules, but they weren't sure whether they were old or new. Um, But what they did see was the lower part of his lungs were kind of grayed out as if he had um, pneumonia and he had a blood clot. And he had a blood clot because he had been sitting for the last two weeks, you know, unable to move because the cancer was causing him to be still. So that was our first emergency. They did a biopsy and the cancer was back. And then he died four months later.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh,
1: I'm so sorry. Yeah. It was not a, it was not a fun time, but one of the things I discovered and, and I, you know, you alluded to it in my, in my bio is that, um, a lot of people knew how to be supportive. They knew how to show up. They knew what to say. They knew what not to say. And then a lot of people didn't know how to be right. supportive. And it sort of blew me away, right? It's right. Just sort of, we, we kind of assume we all know what to do and what to say, but most of us don't have a clue. And I wrote the book for those people um, because, you know, I often say if one in three of us is going to get cancer, the other two need to know how to be supportive. And there's a lot of information out there for people with cancer. It's not enough, but there's a lot of information out there if you have cancer and support groups and books and, you know, symposiums and all these things you can go to. But there is very little out there for those who are one for caregivers, but also for those who want to support, for the coworkers, for the friends, for the neighbors who want to help and don't know what to do. So that was that was why I wrote this book. Um, and the joke is I kind of wrote it for myself because... Before my husband got cancer, I was one of those people who I thought I knew what to say, but I didn't.
0: Mm. What would you say?
1: I tell people never to say this and to wipe this phrase from their vocabulary. If you need anything, let me know. And there are th- it sounds so helpful. It really does. And we really do mean, mean it when we say it, right. but there are three reasons this is not helpful. The first is what is anything, Right. I had a toddler who one day was throwing up at school and needed to be picked up. Did you mean that you were going to go pick up my vomiting toddler in your beautiful, just detailed car? Or did you mean that you were happy to run out and get a gallon of milk? I had a friend whose mother was dying. When you said anything, did you mean you were really comfortable to sit with a woman who was dying and read to her? Or did you mean that you were going to like, you know, just stop by and, and tell her the latest gossip from work? Right, anything is too big a word. It just it spans too much.
0: The so second reason that's, I can I give you my input on this. I want to give you mm-hmm. what I say is if you're going to say anything, it better be anything. It better be everything right is described, and right. And I don't know how much you read of my story. I won't go into it. Um, but for me, you know, I remember we had a lot of those. Anything you need, and. I called someone out on it and I needed something very specific. It was an errand and and I used to live in Los Angeles for over 20 years. You know how hard it is to get around. Yes. Yes. She lived a block away from where this thing needed to be done. And it was, I think for her, it seemed like a really small deal, but I just said, you said anything, this is what we need. And you live a block away. It would be great if you could do this. And it was the only thing we ever asked of her. But right. it meant a lot to us, and it was a very obscure one-off errand. Yes, you know? and and so she meant anything. Yes, but, but you're right. I mean, most people, it's too broad.
1: And yes, it's exactly. It's just too broad. And look, yeah. though, if you need anything, is a great phrase. If this is your best friend who's sick. If this is your sister who you have a great relationship with, who's, who, who has said it to you, then they mean anything. If that means that they're going to get on a plane and fly out, my sisters would have hopped on a plane. My sisters did hop on a plane and fly out. So anything was appropriate for them. But for most of us, like you said, anything's too broad. Yeah. And the second reason it's not helpful is you're asking the person who's under incredible amount of stress to break down their day into a tiny size piece. And then the third reason is you ask them to, to ask you that tiny size piece when they're feeling vulnerable, risking that you may say no or worse that you get the, oh, um, that pause, right? The, the breath through the teeth, the, the moment where the person who has offered anything didn't really think that's what you meant. That's what they meant when you said anything. And so no one in their situation, most people in their situation are not going to answer that call because they don't want to, they don't know what they need. Even if they figure out what they need, they're terrified of asking and being rejected and putting a burden on the other person. So I often tell people be as specific as possible, right? So, and that random thing, sometimes, you know, I had a friend who went shoe shopping for my youngest son Because, you know, kids do outgrow their shoes overnight. I had my youngest do exactly that. And so one day, the day before, he was complaining about his feet hurting. The next day, he couldn't put his feet in his shoes. like It hurt so much. And so I was like, well, you got to go to school. We'll deal with this. And I called my friend. I said, can you go pick up a bunch of shoes? These are the sizes. And this is what she did. So I often say, look if you are capable and we often are put yourself in that person's shoe in shoes and just say, Hey, has your cell phone bill been paid? Let me drop off a check for you. Or let me, let me drop off the payment for you. Let me pay it for you. Give me your account number information and I'll pay it for you. Right. Or my favorite one is when you're at the grocery store, instead of saying, let me go grocery store shopping for you, call the person and say, I am heading to the grocery store open up your refrigerator and your cabinets and tell me what five things are you almost out of? And I will pick them up for you, right? Car help, which is a chapter I have in my book, you know, car in Los Angeles is vital, you know, getting around anywhere in any city and any place where you are is difficult. Um, And so making sure their car is running. When was the last time the oil was changed? Is there gas in your car? Do you need me to go register it for you? All those little things—they're small little things that are really, really powerful and important. Um, I—I
0: will disagree with you slightly.
1: Sure, go for it. Back a
0: little bit because I found that sometimes when people were very specific, they sort of got locked in on well, this is how I can help, even if it was not needed. Mm -hmm. And so I had a very dear friend who lived across the country. And, 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 you know, couldn't be there in person, but right. he kept trying to get us meals. Yeah. It became this huge headache because he was trying to have meals delivered. Now this was long. This was 20 years ago. It's before it right. and all this, but he was trying to get us these gourmet meals delivered. Right. And it, it became such a headache because every time they tried to deliver, we would be at a doctor's appointment or we would be at the yes. hospital or something. yes. And I finally just told them, I appreciate the gesture. I do, but this is causing me way too much stress.
1: Yes. Yes. But that
0: was how he felt he could help.
1: Yes. And it's unfortunate because one of the best ways that someone helped us the second time was my friend said, you need to put a cooler by the front door so that when meals are delivered, you don't have to answer the door. Right? So I think- I, yeah, I know, I know. So simple and brilliant. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I think the thing to remember for most people, it's really simple, right? And I think to me, what I, what I, what I liked is even though sometimes the gesture wasn't what we needed, it was the gesture. It was because what you're saying when you are trying to help somebody is, I love you. I really want to help. I'm concerned about you. I want to make your life a little bit easier. I can't fix the cancer, but I can deliver a gourmet meal. And, you know, it's a very similar story. Um, I worked with someone who had cancer and he was kosher. And so, you know, people were trying to send him food and he needed it to be from a specific person. And, you know, so he was very kosher and so it became a headache. So he just said, you know what, y'all, thank you. No food. Yeah. and he did come up with another way that people can help. But yeah. Right. So in general, it's it's a good rule of thumb um, and I will say and I'm happy to hear that he did this with you. I always tell people offer more than once. We're often afraid because we say we offer and then we then we go, "Well, they haven't called me." But you need to remember, I have to tell people, you're not this person may look like they're dealing with a full deck of cards, but they're not. You know, they're, they're extremely stressed. They're missing anywhere between two to 50 cards. Right? Yeah. So, so so do not think that just because you offered once that they're right. going to remember that you offered, um, they have a, if, if they're in a community, they have a lot of help coming from all these different places and they're not going to remember. So I say, just jog their memory, call back in two weeks, um, and offer. Okay. Um, I so to be back to you. Yes.
0: Okay. All right. This is one of my favorite questions to ask that I don't get to ask very often. How is your experience as the caregiver, as the spouse, the wife, different than your husband's? Um,
1: he's, he was scared to lose his life. I was scared to lose him and the ramifications of that. So I think in the back of my mind, I was always thinking like, really, you can't die. Like this would not be good if you died. I married you because you're a co-parent. I married, you know, he was the primary caregiver. I mean, he was a primary source of income in the home. Um, I was, you know, I think there's that. And I think the biggest thing what I mentioned earlier is that he, you know, early on, we sort of knew his job was to fight the cancer. His job was to do everything he could to mentally, physically. And you know, spiritually to get better. And my job was to hold down everything else. And so, um, there's that, you know, taking on everything else, um, yeah. and managing all the care is, was very different. Um, it was interesting because-
0: Every patient because, tells me, every patient tells me that the caregiver's job is harder. Every I've patient. heard
1: that. Yeah. I've heard that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways it is, you know, but again, I think the biggest difference is I'm not fighting for my life. He was fighting for his life. And I think that that's, while that doesn't seem, I mean, while that doesn't seem like harder, but I just think it's different. I don't, I don't think you can compare the two. I think, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's just different. There's just two different entanglements happening at once.
0: Yeah. If you could hold on to one memory of your husband forever,
1: what would it be and why? There's not one. Um, There's a photograph that I have that I love and it is him. Uh, We were big cycling family. It was him on the bike And he had the extended bike and our youngest child was on the back of the extended bike. And he had wanted, my youngest, my youngest son had wanted to do this forever. So we had to put pedal, we had to put blocks, tape blocks to the pedals, so that he could, his feet could actually touch the thing. And my youngest has his backpack on. He's got a helmet on and glasses. And my husband has the helmet on, you know, and glasses. And he's kind of turned, they're both turned facing the camera. And I love, that picture of him because he was most happy with us. He was most happy with us being active on, on doing something. Um, and he loved incorporating his love in with his kids. He loved kind of mixing it in. Um, so I think there's that and there's him telling stories to our children. He was an English teacher um, and he loved to make up stories and they, of course they had our kids' names in them. So there was like Langolo, Palolo and Ezrolo, and our kid, our children's names were Langston Palace and Ezra and the rapture he would keep, he could keep the kids at the kitchen table for 45 minutes, just kind of like wow. <gasps> listening. And, you know, he was an incredible storyteller. So I think those are my, all right, I got three. And then the last one is us in bed at night playing a word game that we made up. And so the rules were, you, you started with three letters. It was always kind of consonants, right? It was like, you know, S C R or S C H or S T R. And you had to come up with words that started with that. And we would go back and forth and back and forth. And one of us would always fall asleep. So the pauses would get longer and longer and longer, but playing those kind of games with him, um, so those are those are the three that I think of most, and I think they capture who he who he was. Really smart, yeah. kind, gentle, and firm, and active. Just loved his family. He loved us, you know. He literally, literally, I never thought about this before, but he loved us to death.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you guys meet? And what what was his name? What's his name?
1: <laughs> his name is Art Nagel. Art. Um, yeah. We met, the is, we met in a cave. I was working for an outdoor company no. at the school that the school that he was working for brought students out as a bonding thing in the beginning of the year. And I, I, um, I saw him good looking man and I saw him and wasn't thinking anything. He was six, six and I'm five, wow. six. So he was a foot taller than me. Wow! And it didn't, it didn't phase me because that summer I had just finished a uh, leading bike tours with someone who was six, eight, So his height, so I never talked about his height at all that whole weekend and he loved it. And then I invited him to go caving and he was like, yeah, this frame, small spaces. No. And I said, oh, you should come. It's really good for the students for you to try it. I promise I won't get you to squeeze into a too tight spot. And he came twice. (laughs) So... He did yes. with the students out both with 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 the students both times with students uh, two different groups of students but he was like I think I like her and um, so that's sort of how we met and I we dated and I kept telling my sister about him and she said you like him and I said I don't really like him he's just really <laughs> easy to be with and she would you know I tell you him said another st- you didn't like him. I said, I was like, he was kind of like, I was like, he's fine. Like there was, there was no like sparks or like, yeah, he was just really easy to be with. And then he went home for Christmas and he didn't call me on Christmas day. And I was like, I, all I knew about him is they lived in Maine. That's the only thing I knew. And so, and so I was like, should I call the police? I mean, he's the kind of guy who would call my sisters. Like you like him. And I'm like, I know I was just concerned. Cause he, he would call on Christmas and just say, Hey, Merry Christmas. And she's like, you like him. And I'm like, no. And I'm like, fine. Yes. I like him. Should I call the state police to find out if he's dead? So, so that was, that was how it happened. That's what I knew that I really wanted to keep him around and, you know he was very mellow and calm and i have a lot of energy and i'm super passionate and it just worked for us Oh, it sounds like it did how long yeah. after you met did you get married we got married um we got married in 94 and we met in 91 so he actually asked me to marry him about 8 months after we were um we were dating and i was like hold the phone you got to know you're dating crazy And so, so, (laughs) so So I dragged him to therapy because I was like, you need to know some things about me. Is that, (laughs) I'm going to just dig a
0: little here. Is that because of childhood trauma? Yes,
1: absolutely. Yep. Yep. Childhood trauma. Um, and, and honestly, insecurity. Like I was like, no, you don't really know me. If you knew the other me, you wouldn't really want to date. You wouldn't want to marry me. So I'm oh. going to give you an opportunity. So, you know, it was, it was, you know, bona fide insecurity. Yeah. Um. So we went to therapy and then by the time the first date we were supposed to be married came around like two months before, I was like, damn it, should have kept that wedding date, but he yeah. stuck by me he kept saying, you know what? You want to move cross country? We'll move cross country. You want to hear? I just, I want to be with you. And if you don't want to get married, we won't get married. I'm just going to be with you. So he had that really firm groundedness. It was really beautiful. It was, I felt yeah. very lucky to have met him. Um, oh, yeah,
0: gosh, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Did your sister like him?
1: My, oh, my whole family loved him. Yeah. Everybody loved him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's oh, a good. I feel like I, I, I really
0: get a good sense of him. Yeah. <laughs> what was not his, but what was your worst moment in all of
1: it? I don't know if there are two moments um, that always stand out in my head that were extremely difficult, but I'm really glad I had the courage to do it. And the first one was the cancer got so bad with my husband that he went from needed crutches to kind of stand up to needing a walker. And this isn't a a former athlete, basketball player, you know, active man. He was so just not okay with this. And he was, I remember he was walking down. We had this kind of living room with two steps down and he's trying to navigate with this walker, trying to get himself down these stairs. And I saw how hard he was working to live. Like I just, I got a sense of he was just working so hard. So um, our kids were away. Uh, my, my my in-laws took them for a week during their break. And so we had some time alone. And I said to him, it's okay if you go. Like, I see how hard you're working. I see how hard you really want to live. We're going to be okay. We're not going to be okay, but we're going to be Okay we, we can survive. And it was, (laughs) it was a movie moment, except there was a lot of snot coming out of our noses and, (laughs) you know, like stuff dripping in between the two of us, you know? Um, so, and then three weeks later he died. Mm. And so I, I hope that I gave him the peace and the understanding that he didn't have to fight so hard anymore because he was in so much pain. And he was trying so hard. And then the second hardest moment was my husband did give us the grace to say goodbye. And, and I, and I mean, and I don't mean that people make the decision, but he was able to kind of leave and give us a couple days before he really left. Um, and so I made the decision. We, my husband and I were very much about teaching, you know, being honest with our children about what was happening. Um, and so when the doctor came in and said, it's over, um, I called friends and I had them pick up the kids from school and I had them bring the kids to the hospital so they could say goodbye to their dad. And, um, I really would have preferred not to, I would have preferred to kind of, hey, announce, hey, your dad's dead. Um, but something that I had forgotten was that kids, my kids had seen him survive cancer once and, they didn't know anyone who died from cancer so they right. didn't think their father was going to die
0: right
1: and so when i told each of them you know i brought them into the room and i said here's what's happening you know dad's going to die it's probably going to be in a couple of days the doctor says um he's unconscious right now but he can still hear you um and you know do you want to go in and say goodbye and so bringing each of the kids into the room to say goodbye to their father individually was probably actually, honestly, it was the worst moment because to not be able you know, you want to protect your kids from everything, you know, you can't, but to the one thing you really want to do at this moment is not do what you're doing. So to be able to give them the opportunity to say goodbye to their father was still to this day, I feel like it was one of the biggest gifts I gave them because they just, You know, they just, they didn't, they didn't have the, you know, they, they wouldn't have had the opportunity. And I, and I, out of my own decision, out of my own selfishness, I would, I could have taken that away from them and I didn't want to. So I think those were the two worst moments of my life and also the two moments where, um, not by my own grace, but I was able to gracefully gift, um, the love, give something to to the people that I love the most.
0: Did your kids have any fear of losing you after they lost their dad?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we all, I marched everyone to support group, and I feel so grateful. We lived in an area where there was a support group for each of my children with age appropriate kids. So really, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Not only just a support group for me, for widows who, you know, at the time widows under 50, but there was a support group. My child, you know, like I said, my kids were 12, nine and seven at the time. They had a 12 year old group, a nine year old group and a seven year old group, um, which was both heartbreaking. And I'm so grateful. Um, But the advice that we were told as parents was to tell them what the plan is if you die, because their fear is one that you're going to die, but then they don't know what's going to happen to them. And so you can't take away the fear that you're going to die, but you can let them know, here's what, here's what will happen to you if you die. Here's where you're going to go. Here's the plan. And so it does tamp down the fear. And so I did tell them, I said, you know, here's what's going to happen. If something happens to me, and of course, lots of tears, but I said, look, you know, I can't, I can't promise you that I'm going to be here. So if something happens to me, you will go live with your aunt Fern in Boston and they're like, but they don't have a big enough house. And they said, well, there's money that will go to, to her that will help her buy a big house. And you'll be able to see all your cousins and you'll be able to visit, you know, Nana and grandpa and Judy and Ju- Judy is my mother goes by Judy with the kids. Um, yeah, she didn't want to be called grandma. Um, so, so they needed to know that. Um, The other thing I learned when the kids from a grief support person was that kids grieve differently. So when your listeners heard that my husband died and the kids were young in our heads without even thinking, it's a nanosecond. We think about graduations, birthdays, you know, marriages, birth that, that, that the the adults are going to miss. Right. So, so our grief is in the moment. Kids don't realize those passages are going to be big moments in their lives when they're young. And so when they get to those moments It's like they're losing. It's like the grief comes back to them and they just lost again. And so high school graduations are a big one. College, not so much because now they get that they're going to miss them. So now they understand, oh, there's these life moments. But in the beginning, especially with young kids, when they did, we had moving up day um, ceremonies in our school. So the kids would have this day where they would move up to the next grade and it was kind of celebrated. And so my kids didn't think about moving up day. My kids didn't think about the all school camping trip, right. And coming home from that. Um, my kids didn't think about their first time that they went, kiss somebody. So those things, yeah, yeah. Those, those were really hard.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. What is one thing that you wish you had known at the very beginning of Art's cancer
1: journey? That's a really hard question to answer because the things that have changed my life because of the cancer journey, I needed them to happen, right? So that I could turn into this different person that I am. Um, And so if I would known they were happening, going to happen, the outcome wouldn't have been the same. I think what I wish I had known was really to spend less time being a little resentful, being not even a little resentful, being resentful and more time just loving him. Mm. Um, I think that, again, we have this image of being a caregiver and that means you give all and you're just kind of constantly pouring out and which is not a great thing to be doing, right? You need to, you need to be getting in while you're pouring out so you can keep the well level or at least well full of water. Um, but there were times that I was, mad at him because I was taking all this on and it wasn't his responsibility. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't him. I was taking it on and I probably could have offloaded a lot more than I did.
0: I think that's great advice though, right there for caregivers that you can delegate more or just delegate things.
1: Things, Everything doesn't have to happen. Exactly. Exactly. And I think this is going to segue in a second, but you know, I ended up after he died, I ended up going back to work and back into my original field which was with HR and seeing how, um, cancer in the workforce, it, people are just as blind and don't know what to do and don't know what to say. And with more with, you know, with, with cancer treatments, more and more people are working with cancer. And so this creates this really weird dichotomy at the workforce between the team, the manager getting things done. Yeah. And, um, I wish I had known to talk to his team and his boss more about how to bring him back because he did go back mm-hmm. to work, but it was really hard for him. And he was yeah. really stressed because he wanted to show up in this certain way and people wanted him to show up in a certain way, but they noticed that he was a little spacey sometimes and not his full self. And so there was just this weird moment at work and I wish I had been able to help both of them his boss, the team and, and him navigate that more cleanly. Um, it didn't matter. I mean, it, it mattered because he, he did, he loved his job. He loved his job and he was so excited to be able to go back. And so, yeah, I think those are, those are sort of the, the two that I didn't have to get everything done. It didn't have to be done. I, you know, I was very much also sometimes about getting it done a certain way. It didn't have to be right. And, you know, (laughs) You know, the, but when the, you know your way is the best way, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> the problem. And also, you know, what? let's talk about that for a second. When your brain is under stress, it's really hard when things are not the way you want them. And I saw this with my own grief, right? Like I would, all of a sudden I was short tempered about the dumbest things. And I, and I equate it to giving birth when you are giving birth, like that people always joke that, you know, you're always mean to your husband. If, if you do, if, if you're not on drugs or whatever, right.
0: If you're oh, yeah, giving the movies, natural birth, for sure.
1: yeah. right in the movies, yeah, you're short, you're kind of nipping and that's because your whole body is focused on birthing anything outside of that. Your brain is giving your body all this other stuff. Anything outside of that is pulls your attention away. And I think the same thing happens when you're grieving and when you're caregiving, when you're caregiving, your whole body is focused on taking care of everything else, right? Oh yeah. And it's focused on the doctor's appointments and the side effects and on making sure there's food on the table and making sure it's the right food on the table and make sure the kids are fed, whatever it is. So anything outside of that makes you kind of snippy. And no, as a caregiver, you do have the option to give away some of that so that you're not out. So you're not snippy. Um, there's no reason, re- you know, you could, you can, you can offload some of that. So I think that that's, to me, it's understandable that caregivers like, you know, cause we do think our way is the best way, but it's because if it's different, it causes confusion and anxiety because everything else around us is so chaotic. Yeah. Um, so, I would say to those who are caregivers, like really try to let it go, yeah um and to those who are trying to support caregivers, just give them a lot of grace um because their lives. Even they're smiling, and maybe they look really thin because they lost a lot of weight, right? All those things, <laughs> you know, they're not okay. I look—I mean, I don't know if I look the same, but I looked younger for sure. But, <laughs> you know, I—I I still had the same bubbly personality. I loved being with people. I loved talking to people. I would share with them what's happening, so they didn't know that I was super, super stressed. But oh, holy cow, I was super, super stressed. So that's what I would say.
0: Kim, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why?
1: Only one? Okay, only I'm going to try. <laughs> okay. Um, I saw the power of community, my outside community, helping with my medical community, with our medical community. And I would love to see hospitals, doctors, nurses asking about friends and families and the kind of support that they have and working together to bring them the support. Because to know that three days after Art gets chemo, it's going to be his worst day. And that community outside knowing that they can then show up for a diff- in a different way for him and for me. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to see that coordination. Um, that would be, the, I, and I think that the healthcare. the um, results would be much better. People would heal quicker. People would feel better. People would feel more positive. Um, doctors and nurses would feel more engaged, right? Because they see this person getting help from their community, even if the community is two people. Right. I just think it would have such major mental and physical benefits, emotional benefits for everybody involved. So that's what I'd like to see.
0: I love that answer. Are you ready for the thriver? Fire? Ready.
1: Ratifier? Okay. <laughs>
0: beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains. Beach boys, beetles, or rolling stones?
1: Oh, um, beetle stones. <laughs> I had to
0: pick for rolling stones. I have no idea why. Okay. I love that. answer.
1: No, I did. No, no. Beetle and the rolling stones. No, you're absolutely right. I just can't choose between the two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is one word that best describes you? Joyful. Oh, that's a good word for you. Definitely. Before you die, what is the last song you went to hear?
1: I don't know the name of it. Um, It's a classical piece. It's a piece I used to play on the piano all the time. And I'm going to embarrass myself right now by going, oh, shit, I don't even know if I can sing it. No, I can't even sing it. It's it's a beautiful <laughs> classical piece, and that's what I'd like to hear before I die. I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll get, send you the note, send you the thing, and then you could put the link in the show notes.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, please do, because now I'm really curious which one it is. <laughs> what about the last
1: meal you want to eat? <laughs> I live by the store called Erwan, and they have this crispy broccoli that is to die for. I could eat it every day except that it bloats me. So that is the last meal that I'd really like is the crispy broccoli or, or crispy Brussels sprouts, really perfectly crispified Brussels sprouts.
0: (laughs) What about the last person or people you want to see?
1: Of course I'd have to say my kids. For sure. And the last
0: words you will speak.
1: You got this.
0: And aside from Cancer You, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you and find your book.
1: So, um, I really focus on cancer in the workforce. So I think the biggest recommendation I have is for those who have cancer, go to, uh, cancer They actually help people with cancer, navigate the workforce. They have a great bunch of stuff in there for your manager. They, they have great resources. I love them. If you're a widow, I'm going to tell you to go to soaring spirits, uh, foundation. They are doing incredible stuff for widows of all ages. Um, reach, yes. See a soaring spirits foundation. Um, incredible organization. She was actually CNN hero. She was a top 10 CNN hero last year in 2021. Um, so she does incredible work. And of course she was a widow and she wanted to put together this community because she didn't have one. um, when her husband died and she was 35 or 36. So those are the two ones I want to, um, really stress for people. And then lastly to find me. Um, so first of all, I have a free download, five phrases, never to say to anybody with cancer and what to say instead. And so I give you five, the first one I've already given away, but there are four other phrases that no person with cancer or anyone going through any crisis wants to hear. And I do share why it's a bad thing to say. So you can actually learn from it and understand, you can take the lessons and apply it to other things that you might want to say to somebody dealing with cancer. You can Please find that at...
0: Please tell me one of those phrases is God only gives you what you can handle. Please
1: no, but that was, I will tell you what, that's, that was number six because was it? <laughs> yes, because I was, oh. I was debating him. Yes. I oh. hear you. Oh my gosh. Yep. And I have a, a card that I have on my other bulletin board, which says, thank you God for giving me, um, thank you God. I've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause it's yeah. I love it. Yes. Yep. I hear you. Um, so you can go to 100 acts of com backslash what not to say no oh capitalizations, just all one word, what not to say to get that. And that's the number 100 acts of com. And then please feel free to reach out to me. I'm on Instagram at 100 acts of love and I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn as well. So I'm on LinkedIn. i um, doing that. And yeah, that is, that is pretty much it. I, I, you know, I am happy to support Any person with cancer, you know, especially in the workforce, but if you have friends and you don't know, you you want them to help you, but you're just too tired and you don't even know how they can help you, we can certainly set something up and I can, you know, walk you through some of the best. There's a really easy assessment to figure out how people can show up for you. Um, And the last thing I really want to say to everybody on this call I am not who I am. I'm not this joyful being because I went through something hard and I got through the other side. I am here because of the hundreds of things that people did for us while my husband was sick and after he died. Every little thing they did mattered. And I want people to so know that you mattered you matter. Showing up, even just saying, I'm so sorry, this is happening to you makes a difference in the other person's life. What you say and how you show up matters. So I just want everyone to really take that to heart. You're an important person in your friend's life or your coworker's life. Um, so to take heart in that and then to show up in the best way possible.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh gosh, Kim, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your and Art's story today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the opportunity to to remember him and to honor him in this way. I really, I really appreciate that.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Rivers podcast. Real people, true stories.